This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. And I've got with me today, Rachel Allen. Hi, guys. So today we are not continuing yet. We are going to continue our podcast talking about the arousal template. However, we thought that, and we'll get another one released this month on the arousal template. This recording, we wanted to talk about some stories. Some of them I think are national, others are more local, but related to the work that we do. We thought that that gave us a good opportunity to talk about, you know, maybe some of our feelings about these issues. Some of them are more local. I'm sure they're not just happening here in Utah, but we have been aware for years some of the news, and they haven't been news stories until now. But we've been aware, working with clients, of some of the issues and the problems with some therapists who market themselves or advertise themselves as working with sexual addiction or sexual issues. So just let me kind of summarize a little bit, and then we'll get into the discussion around it. So the one that I think has made national news is around Eight Passengers and Ruby Frankie and Jody Hildebrandt. Now, full disclosure, I, I never watched anything on YouTube about Eight Passengers. Eight Passengers was brand new to me when the news story broke. I don't really get into watching a lot of reality TV. I don't watch like family things. I think there's a part of me that like, I hadn't heard of this one, but I think there's a part of me that cringes around this because I think there's a part of me that just feels like, mm, I don't want to watch this. I feel like there's some dysfunctional thing I'm going to see. So I was unaware of them until the news story broke. And so basically, Ruby Frankie's children, one of her sons was, well, two of her children were being housed, held against their will, maybe, and Jody Hildebrandt, who is a therapist here in Utah, I guess they were behavioral issues or something. And she, you know, one of them escaped out a basement window, ran to the neighbor's house. The neighbor, if you've listened to the articles, like the man who opened the door when he ran to the house and he asked for help, he asked for food, he asked for water. Uh, the man gets pretty emotional talking about that day when he opened the door. It was clear that this kid had been bound and held. Um, there were restraints still on him, I think zip ties and maybe some tape that they could still see. You know, the neighbor called the police. When the police came again, they could tell that this boy had been uh, malnourished, was not getting adequate food and water. And they went over to Jody Hildebrandt's home and found another minor child. Now their oldest child of the Frankie family, who was the content creator, Ruby Frankie was their mother, she was the content creator for Eight Passengers, but also was a business partner with Jody Hildebrandt in their connections business that was offering parent advice and different stuff like that. But Jody also is a licensed therapist and practices and advertises working with pornography addiction and sex addiction. So back to the story of the police, you know, get the two children, take them into custody. I think, I think they're still in foster care, maybe. The oldest daughter when the news story broke that her mother and Jody Hildebrandt had been arrested, you know, like posted the news story, like a, a screenshot of the news story with the word finally over it. Apparently the police had been called 
it was like eight or nine times in two or three years to the Frankie house. The oldest daughter, I think she's 20, didn't have contact with her parents and had made some calls to DCFS. DCFS was aware of this family. In Utah, usually there's different acronyms. In Utah, it's DCFS, Division of Child and Family Services. Some places it's CPS, Child Protective Services, kind of the same thing. That's just what we call it here in Utah. And Jody Hildebrandt was arrested because they were held in her home. Since then, one of Jody Hildebrandt's nieces has come forward saying that as a teenager, her parents left her in Jody Hildebrandt's care and similar things. She was restrained, uh, punished by having to sleep outside in the snow, not allowed to talk to anybody. And there were plants or whatever that Jody would have that would report back to her if they saw this niece talking to anybody. So she's come forward. She's been on several news stories. People have talked to her saying, you know, this is not new for Jody Hildebrandt. But Ruby Frankie also, I guess there were people who watched this YouTube channel who also had concerns about some of the advice she was giving, you know, kept one of her sons, like, wouldn't let him have a bedroom and he had to sleep in the living room in a beanbag chair or something for like seven months as punishment. And viewers had some issues with what they saw on the YouTube channel and would, you know, report that. So there was some concern between, you know, what just Ruby Frankie did and then when her and Jody partnered up and whatever happened there. So that's one story. And again, there's also a story that's been reported since all of this has come out that in 2012, I believe it was, Jody's license had been suspended or she was put on probation for violating confidentiality with one of her clients that she was talking to an ecclesiastical leader, which also threatened his student, like BYU, the school BYU has an honor code. And so I think it was threatening his academics at BYU, talking to the bishop about pornography use or pornography addiction or something like that. The person who has come forward has said that he did not identify as having an addiction, but that's what Jody was treating him for, or that's kind of the lens Jody was seeing him through. Which, you know, we do find that here in Utah. Yeah. So that's kind of that case that we'll talk about. Then there's another case that's closer to our Bountiful office location. And so we get some clients who maybe as teens went to that program and then end up coming to our program. And that was the, I think the umbrella term, the company is life-changing services. And then they have programs and these are very uh, Mormon names like Sons of Helaman, Men of Moroni, forget their partners program. But those are very uh, common terms in the LDS Mormon culture. And so he, you know, basically founded a program treating teen boys mostly, although it looks like maybe there had been some girls as well, who, you know, look, struggled looking at pornography, marketed a lot to bishops. LDS bishops marketed a lot to parents. And, you know, so we had some clients who, well, we actually even had a therapist who worked for us briefly who had worked at the program. And as he started to work with us during his MSW internship, had some concerns about, you know, what he was learning with us and then versus what he saw when he was an employee of Life Changing Services, started to question the ethics 
And that's what we had clients coming through that program that as we would talk to them and they would tell us some of their experiences previously in therapy, we had a lot of like, I would say maybe de even deprogramming to do or just challenging some of the beliefs that were drilled into them into that program that were healthy, that were not going to move them close, anywhere close to sexual health or a positive self-image. So that therapist has been in the news. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a program. So one therapist started it, but then I think there are several employees who work there. I didn't look up before starting this, how many actually employees are employed by life-changing services, but they, you know, they, I mean, they have a reach. They have, uh, I think their language markets well to the LDS culture. You know, it's reported that Jody Hildebrandt had an in with the LDS culture. And so I don't know what's factual and what's not factual, but it looks like she was highly recommended by LDS bishops. I mean, we get in full disclosure, we get referrals from LDS bishops to us who pay for services or help to pay for services for clients. Yeah, that's not uncommon in uh, religious communities for an ecclesiastical leader to pay right. for services. And I think it's important to clarify the founder of Life Changing Services is the one that we're actually talking about. He was arrested, right? Yeah. Or yeah, he was, he was arrested and charged um, abuse charges mm -hmm. uh, for a client. And so... And we're talking more physical abuse as yeah. what has been in the papers, at least, Yeah, is that he was physically abusive to the client. Would also, he had also put like a tracker on her. Yeah. We raised knocking. Mm-hmm things that were happening there were uh, there was obviously a lot of like emotional abuse that was also happening I mean not obviously but yeah a lot of emotional abuse that was also have alleged yeah right? it's like none of this has been gone through court yet but like these are the charges and I think it's important that we we recognize that like these are individuals and that that have been charged with abuse allegations mm -hmm. And we wanted to use these moments, I guess, in history because they've happened so close together in our community uh, to talk about what are some of the red flags when you're coming to see a therapist or what is what are some of the things that you should be looking for in, in a therapist and what, and what kind of are the ethical issues that might show up. Right, right. And that's why we felt like it would be a good thing to talk about, not just to like you know, just talk about or sensationalize in some ways these stories, but to also make it helpful for listeners and and therapists who listen to talk about the ethics and and red flags. You know, the third the third story that has been here in Utah, I don't think it's made national news, is a therapist whose license has been suspended for like he was commonly like his niche market, I think, was working with LDS men who identified same-sex attraction, which Rachel and I both have issues with that language of same-sex attraction, but that's the language that is often used in the LDS circles, and that's the language that this therapist used. So it was unwanted desire for same-sex people, right? And he would treat them for, he would say that they had an intimacy disorder, and he would treat them um, in quotation marks, treat them for this intimacy disorder. And it quickly, I mean, from the stories I've read, there's been 83 men who have come forward 
And I know. And, and they don't think that that's all. But there's 83 men who have come forward claiming that, you know, it started out with him telling them they had this intimacy disorder. They needed cuddling. They needed to be comfortable with affection, especially like a paternal affection. And then it would evolve into molestation. And I'm not sure if it was progressed beyond molestation. So his license has also been suspended. And a lot of times therapists get their license suspended, maybe for the maximum time that it can be suspended, which I think varies state to state, but can be up to three years, I think, for suspended license. And then and then they kind of decide if the, if the license is going to be reinstated or if it's permanently revoked. So I think in 2012, when Jody Hildebrand's license was on probation, I think it did get reinstated, I believe. It's kind of unclear what I've read, but I, th I think it was reinstated. I think she was, at the time of her current arrest, she was a licensed therapist. So usually if your license is suspended, you know, you have to have supervision by, usually it's a therapist that is approved by the professional licensing board to oversee. You might have to go through some classes um, usually the supervisor sits in on sessions and really highly oversees what's going on. You usually have to get some more education so that you don't commit more harm. Now, in the state of Utah, I don't know if this is true elsewhere, but in the state of Utah, it's like 47% of therapists who have had their license suspended for unethical behavior reoffend. So those aren't good numbers. Yeah. That's almost half of the people who go through that process of probation and being overseen and trying to be helped to be ethical going forward who end up in trouble again. Which, you know, like I, I tend to be a, like, we are humans and we can make mistakes and, you know, and, and so I, I like the fact that there is kind of a reparation process, um, with licenses and I don't know. I don't know what that soup is that, mm -hmm. that makes that 47%, but it is kind of alarming, right? When you kind of think about like half, almost half of people who have their licenses suspended for ethics are going to reoffend for that mm -hmm. in the state of Utah. And, you know, it's just one of those things, Jackie and I talk about this a lot because ethics is a big thing for me mm -hmm. and it's a big thing for our clinic. We, like we try to be buffer approach as much as possible right like mm -hmm. again we're human and we do make mistakes but we do try and some of it just comes down to like it's it's fascinating to me because in grad school right the things that they preach the most are ethics mm -hmm. right like I I think I had a class every, at least one class every semester mm -hmm. on ethics and in most of our trainings or we're required to get so many continuing education units yes. to renew our license every two years. Some of that has to be in ethics. Yes. Because it's a big reason why therapists lose their license. Right. And it, in fact, like what kind of started us on this, the spiritual deconstruction conversation mm -hmm. in here was I did an ethics class mm -hmm. um, or ethics presentation and around spiritual deconstruction mm -hmm. and how to do that ethically as a therapist. And so like, I do think that ethics are something that are huge in the mental health field. And I think it's good to recognize that 
mental health, psychiatry, psychology was all kind of founded on some really murky ethics to begin with. Yes, yes, there were ethics really at all. I mean, yeah, Freud has some like things, right? That when you look at his writings, you look at his his work that just don't, they aren't ethical. They don't line up at what like today's ethical practices would be, right? Dual relationships, right? Mm-hmm. He was do- he was psychoanalyzing all his friends, daughters right. specifically. And when things like sexual abuse or incest would come up, he would like just kind of pretend that they didn't bring them. You know, there's some uh, evidence to show that his daughter, Anna Freud, actually had a lot of a lot to do with some of his developmental theories mm-hmm. and he didn't give her credit and, mm-hmm. and she had to like fight for that later. And then, you know, you have some of the behavioral people like Skinner who were basically like torturing people into behavioral submission. <laughs> so we have, we have a pretty mired history of ethics in mental health. And because of that, mental health boards have been trying to be very proactive Mm-hmm. And training and, you know, addressing ethics. And I think that that's really important to recognize, too, that this is not like these are things that are being addressed mm-hmm. in the mental health field. We are very uh, as a whole, I feel like the mental health field is very open about like ethical issues and trying to take care of those. But when things like this pop up, and, and again, these are like really concentrated things, like all of mm-hmm. these things kind of happened for us within the, like the last six months around therapists that claim to specialize in some kind of what we do. So mm-hmm. we are very aware of that. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and because it's dealing with sexuality specifically, there's a lot of overlay in terms of like abuse and health and some of those those things. And so, yeah, we wanted to talk. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to read more, I know life-changing services there a couple of years ago, maybe in 2020 or 2021, Rolling Stones had an article that came out. I'm not remembering. It might have been earlier than that. Rolling Stones had an article that came out about uh, the therapist with life-changing services and those allegations. Yeah. It's got to be pretty bad when Rolling Stones has a pretty in-depth, long article about it. And then the therapist who was, you know, working with same-sex attracted men and molesting them. There was a recent article by ProPublica going into the details about that. So though those two, I think his um, practice was called Kenyan Counseling, I want to say. Rachel just pulled up the Rolling Stones article. I'm like, yeah, yes, it, that's it. What year was that? Uh, 2022. Okay, 2022. And then the Ruby Frankie Jody Hildebrandt one has... I know I've seen it on many national like news sources. So that one's not too hard to find. But the other ones, they have been, you know, covered by some national reporting sources. So if you want more information than what I'm giving you, you can certainly find those articles. They're pretty accessible and you can find out more of the details about what has been alleged. At this point, none of them have gone to trial. I think they're all set to be prosecuted shortly here. I'm sure COVID delayed some of that because some of them, their licenses were suspended prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. So I think they're coming up in the news because they're now, you know, I don't know if the therapist will settle the lawsuit, but the charges have been filed and they're going forward. 
So that's why they're kind of making the news, even though it, this, the licenses being suspended were in like 2018, 2019 kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit about just, you know, I mean, those are obvious red flags. Now, some of the, and the ProPublica article did a really good job talking about like some of these men, you know, believed that their bishop, their LDS bishop referred to this counselor for a reason and their standing in the church or maybe even keeping this somewhat confidential was based on them continuing to see the therapist. Yeah. And maybe he made it sound like these were legitimate therapeutic practices. Yeah. I mean, okay, so there I think that this is a good thing to talk about in general is this is this is not starting on session one, right? And there has to be some level of trust built, whether it's between the bishop and the person or between like, because here's the thing, like I refer people to people like to therapists that I trust, right? Mm -hmm. As a therapist, I refer people to therapists that I trust. Now, that being said, I trust those therapists because I know their work professionally mm -hmm. or in a uh, like in a professional setting. But that doesn't mean like I know what happens when the doors are closed, right? And so I think that it is good for people to recognize that you need to build trust with a person on your own, not because of their title, not because of who sent you, not because of like if the ecclesiastical leaders are paying for it or if they're like um, promoted by the church or mm -hmm. promoted by anything, right? Like this is one of those things kind of going back to uh the podcast the rise and fall of mars hill oh right. Uh, right like one of the things that the interviewer the journalist talks about in that is this like idea of celebrity trust and that we will trust people because they're they're charismatic or because they hold a certain position or which is held up as being trustworthy right and that they actually might not be and I think mean, that is the first first thing that we should kind of put out there, right? Like I tell clients all the time, like you shouldn't trust me because I'm a therapist. You should trust me because I do my job well. Yeah. Or the way I'll word it, I will say, like even when I was practicing LDS, you know, it's not uncommon for us. And most of us at Healing Paths are not actively practicing any religion. We have some we do, who, yeah, we do who are religious. But also I would say they're they don't lead with their religion right um and it their religion doesn't necessarily become part of the therapy practice mm -hmm. our lack of religion doesn't necessarily become part of the therapy process right but it's not uncommon where we live for clients to come in and ask like are you lds and i'll usually ask them like can you tell me a little bit about where that question's coming from why that's important for you to know even when i was practicing lds i would say like i'm not against letting you know but in the first session I don't know where that question is coming from like maybe you just need to know if I know the language if I know the verbiage right or maybe you think if I'm LDS and you're LDS then you can trust me or if I'm not LDS you couldn't trust me as much or maybe if you're not LDS and I am you can't trust me like I don't it seems like a trust issue mm -hmm. and I don't think whether I am or am not is really going to inform you about trust. Right. 
And I know it's my job as a therapist to build trust in this office based on what happens and what I do. Right. And so once we've established that trust based on interactions, based on how I show up for you, then then I don't care if you know. And and usually that goes fine. And usually it's it's not it doesn't become an issue whether they're LDS and we're not or they're not LDS and one of our therapists is like it usually isn't that big of an issue. They're they're free to bring that up in the session. They're free to bring out their religious beliefs and we'll try to do our best to work within that concept or that framework. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of reading on the fly right. with clients that I wasn't familiar with their religion of choice or their spiritual mm-hmm. practice of choice. Right. Like I've done a lot of research right. to understand my client where they're at so they don't feel like they're constantly having yeah. to explain themselves. Or I'll tell new, you know, because we don't just see LDS clients. Right. I get, you know, let the larger Christian religion clients. We've gotten some Jehovah Witness clients. Like, I have a couple of, I mean, I've had previously a couple of pagan clients, right? Like, and on top of this, like this kind of feeds into my, like the ethics of this. As therapist, our religious beliefs and practices should not inform a client's right. work. Right. And that is in every single ethics board right. that re- our religion should not in the therapist, the therapist's religion should not in any way trump or color or influence the client, right? That the client has to be, you know, self-governing. And this is something that actually came up when I was in undergrad. And a lot of, I I actually had someone tell me that you could not be a Christian and be a therapist because therapists were anti-Christian. Which I just thought was hilarious at the time because that's not how it works. Um, but there is this level of right there. There is this belief I think within religious communities that secular therapists are trying to get you out of your religion. Right. That's a myth. I have actually never known a secular therapist to try to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be a few, and but like, right, like I'm just saying, that is not the majority of secular therapists. In fact, there are a lot of secular therapists that have their own faiths and oftentimes have their own faith in the faith that you are going to them for because we live in a religious country, right? And so like recognizing that because they are a secular therapist with a secular license, that that doesn't mean that they're anti-religion. And I think that that's really important because we we have this other side, right, where we have, like, I don't think the LDS Church has a um, certification, but, like, evangelical Christians have certified Christian therapists. And I'm going to rant for just a mini, mini second on this. Um, that is a certification. It is not a licensure. Right. Which means that they are held to their license standard, which still says that their religion should not be in control of that session. Mm-hmm. It should be up to the client. And there's this caveat in certified Christian therapy where they can pray with clients, where they can read scripture, where they'll use Christ. And really, that's a violation of their license ethics. Mm-hmm. Now, we've 
allowed it to happen because there's this certification and I have some other beliefs about that. I mean, I have known therapists here in Utah who are put on probation for praying with client. Right. Um, and that's therapist initiated, not client initiated. Right. You know, I've had clients before who will say, can we begin our session with a prayer? And I will kindly let them know, no, we can't. <laughs> if you right. feel like it, you would like the session to be guided by prayer, you're welcome to do that before you come into the session that that won't be done as part of our session. And and even in Utah, the professional licensing board is pretty clear that like you you can't do that. Yeah. That's not that's not your under the umbrella of what your license is for. Right. It's out of it's out of our lane. Right. right. We are not spiritual professionals. We are not trained to be spiritual professionals. Even certified Christian therapists who are trained to be quote unquote spiritual professionals are not allowed to do that because they're licensed. Mm -hmm. And that is a double standard that I think that we, I like, I want to address because if you are seeing a certified Christian therapist and they are doing those things, they are actively going against their license. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be comfortable for you to know that they know the language. And if you, as, as a client, feel like, you know, you want to pray in a session or whatever and certified Christian therapist kind of can hold that. But that's a struggle for me. And that's ultimately, uh, you know, when I was back, when I was involved, that is ultimately why I didn't uh, pursue that certification mm -hmm. because it felt unethical to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it specifically that piece felt unethical to me. And so that kind of leads into this, like if you're going to a therapist and religion is at the forefront Right. That in and of itself may be a red flag. And and I'll refer back to our conversation around the docuseries Shiny Happy People when we mm -hmm. talked about, you know, the the power that people can be and whether that's parents, whether that's religious leaders, maybe that's a therapist who, you know, the client can believe that they're somehow speaking for God. Mm -hmm. That that's a position of authority. I don't know that anybody should hold over another person and and so i think again that's where it kind of blurs the lines between i mean a therapist already has a lot of i don't know the word authority but they have a lot of um they're in a place of a power. lot of power and i think that's where the field has been more and more recognizing in that position of power you cannot abuse that like and so here's kind of the guidelines that will keep you out of abusing that manipulating that somehow misusing that place of authority right now i think especially with sexual issues i mean i've had clients like i do some of this like when they're coming into me with problematic sexual behaviors or you know uh abuse issues maybe they're not acting out that abuse issue but it's causing problems in their life we get those clients as well where there's not necessarily addiction going on but there's problems maybe based from history of sexual abuse and and they're trying to be sexual now as adults with a consenting person a partner and it's just not going well i'm gonna get a, a sexual history timeline mm -hmm. which i you know i'm sure many of these therapists have i've known therapists before who you know as i'm working with this client who you know there there is litigation against their previous therapist or you know, there's, they've had to report a previous therapist. And, you know, some of what they're reporting to me, I'm like, yeah, I do that. Like, yeah, I do that. I just don't do the other part of them misusing my position or 
the information than I thought. And so, but I could totally see, like, I have all of this information from a sexual history, their family history. Grooming then would not be difficult. If, right. If I did not have a conscience, right? If I was not operating from my own value of ethics, grooming would not be difficult because right. I have all of this information. I could easily misuse that or I can use it in a way that actually helps the client. But I've worked with clients who have been very damaged by previous therapists. You know, the therapist became another perpetrator in their life. Yeah. Yes. And I think that this is one of those things that is really important for people to understand is there are minute differences. Like that line is really thin between what is therapeutic and what can cross the line into unethical. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is like the entitlement and awareness, right? Like I think self-disclosure is one of those. I mean, we, we talk about self-disclosure a lot as therapists, right? I share some of my story with my clients because I think because it is useful to them, right? Mm -hmm. And I do try to keep that, like, it's not my therapy session, right? right? But like, I was recently talking to a client that I've worked with for a while now. Like it's been, it's been several years and I disclosed something about myself that they didn't know, but it did give them some context to, to trust that I understood what they were kind of going through mm -hmm. in that emotional space because they felt alone. Mm -hmm. And that was more for them, not really for them to know my story. And it was okay. really small. I want to be clear. That was a very small amount of information. But in general, like, you shouldn't feel like your client is a buddy. No. And you shouldn't feel like you know more about your therapist than they know about you. Mm -hmm. And we kind of use that, that you know, uh, mindset of, like, anytime as a therapist we're disclosing, we have to kind of run it past ourselves. Like, why am I telling them? Yes. Like, like what is what do I think the benefit is? And I've had that before where it didn't accomplish the what I thought it would, but more often than not, it does accomplish what I think it will. And a lot of times I think, especially in addiction, there's historically always been a stigma around yes. addiction. And so I, I know therapists, I mean, I don't identify as an addict, but I know therapists, like sometimes I will also say addiction is the, the mental health field of addiction is much more likely to have people who it's a second career for them or who struggled with that same thing and then became professional right. counselors, right, professionally, then I think general mental health, right? And so, you know, sometimes it is helpful. I know that the, as sometimes they will disclose just to kind of say, like, look, I'm not judging you. I get this, right? And we have, when we don't identify as addicts, we also kind of have to let them know, I'm not judging you. Or I've had clients who are saying, like, why are you working with addiction? Like, you don't, I don't think you're an addict, in recovery so why are you working with this and i may say well it touches my family right i mean yeah i will usually tell people like there is a reason that we all get into this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and one of the things that i think is really important to you is recognizing that people like therapist wounds will show up in a therapist office if they haven't done their work right and like mm -hmm. something very recently hit me like we were you and I were talking about it. Like I had something happen earlier this year and it's still pretty sensitive to me and I'm still working through that. And so when it shows up in therapy, like I am trying to be open and transparent about that with you 
mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. doesn't affect my work with clients. Right. And, you know, I think that that's where, you know, having a team, like you and I have worked together for years on making sure that we're keeping each other accountable mm-hmm. so that our ther- our clients don't become part of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that requires us to have a good team around us, right? Like right. If, you know, like if you can't be challenged by the team around you, it does no good. But I do think like that's one of the things with our team that I do think that we do well is we call each other's blind spots when we see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, and I've I've told you before. I mean, I'm a sole owner of the practice, right? Which has its downfalls. Like right when if I'm not accountable to somebody, right. power can be abused, right? right? In those situations. And so I've said to you before, like if you see something, whether it's like within our team or what, if you have questions, I will absolutely stop and consider it. Mm-hmm. And I won't go forward until you and I have kind of gotten on the same page with that. Like, so I've made myself accountable to you because I think it's healthy to be accountable. Right. And no accountability, which I think some of these therapists have had, right, is dangerous. Right. And I feel like... Okay, so here's my other, like, one, everyone should be accountable to someone. Yes. And that someone should feel like they can hold you accountable. Right. Mm -hmm. Because every time I have come to you with something, you have done just that. You have considered it. We've talked about it. We've discussed it. And, right, like, people can sometimes say, like, I have people I'm accountable with, but those people that they're accountable with can't say anything, right? Right. I think about, again, going back to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and how Mark Driscoll, like, held accountability. Like, they were all terrified that they were going to get fired. Mm-hmm. And so nobody could actually, like, talk to Mark. And the ones that did, did get fired and mm-hmm. did get ostracized. And so, like, that's not real accountability, right? Right. Um, I also always question if someone tells me that their accountability is God, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Like, it has to be God and someone else. Right. It cannot just be God. Well, I would say, too, I mean, as a team, we do some team development, right? So, and I mean, you've, we've worked together for a long time. You know me. And so, you know enough of my story that you can come and say, hey, is this showing up? Right. Or, you know, I know you have a tendency to stay too long in things, give people too many chances. Is this happening right now? Right. So I think, too, it's like you got to know the person well enough to be able to know what you see in their blind spots and be able to address that. Right. And, yeah, and coming back to, like, the client-therapist relationship, what that looks like. A therapist can only take you as far as they have gone themselves mm-hmm. in therapy, right? And so you and I have got, done this long enough, right, where we can kind of feel that, like we feel the like, mm, that feels off. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are coming to therapy in crisis. So you're not really gauging whether or not it feels off. You're trusting that it's a safe place to land. Mm-hmm. And I think that there comes a point where it's good to have a different viewpoint maybe with someone outside of therapy if something feels off Mm -hmm. right and that's one of the things that I think is really important with like the sexual abuse or physical abuse cases right the truth is a therapist should have no sexual relationship with you period it is an every single one of our advanced things like there should be no flirting there should be no banter there should be no like getting close or like really 
I kind of even feel the like, they shouldn't be calling you pretty or beautiful or like sexy or attractive. Like that just gets weird for me. And that may be because of what we do. (laughs) But like, if I had a therapist do that, and when we've heard it from clients who have been to previous therapists, it was always Always. part of grooming. Yes, it was. And it was always weird for them too, right? Like it all, it doesn't land well. Like I, I was, but they normalized it. Right. They normalized it because it kept happening. Right. So they thought, well, maybe it's just me. Right. And that's not, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And you have the right to say, that's a lie. That's a boundary. And you just crossed it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I would say for clients is like empower yourself to like, if you feel uncomfortable with something that happens in therapy, talk to your therapist about it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not comfortable, just get a new therapist and just get a new therapist talk to that therapist about it right if you can't talk to the therapist about something a line that they've crossed that's a good sign it's not a good fit for you Mm -hmm. because in and i would say too that usually starts earlier than it becoming sexual like you have clients who will say hey i left the session and you said something and maybe i heard it wrong but it kind of hurt my feelings i've had that before and then they bring it up and they're like i'm like did I say, I don't know what I said. Tell me what I said, right? And sometimes I'm like, I I don't remember saying that. I don't even remember thinking that. I'm not telling you that's not what you heard mm-hmm. because miscommunication is most likely to happen in good communication, right? right? But I'm like, let's work through that. Like, because I don't want you to feel like I, I'm not going to gaslight you here. Or sometimes I'm like, I think I said this. I can see how you heard this. Can I clarify mm-hmm. what I meant, what my intention was, right? But again, I think with some of the clients that we've gotten from these other, you know, therapy services, other programs. Well, we do have a lot of people that come to us from other therapies. Yeah, they, they have sought out help for their sex addiction prior to coming to us. And I mean, the other thing that I often say I'm a CSAT supervisor. I'll say to almost every candidate that I'm supervising, it is part of our job to diagnose addiction. It is also part of our job to say this is not addiction. This is unhealthy belief systems that are getting in the way of you having a healthy relationship with sexuality, not addiction, right? So it is just as important for us to identify that it is not addiction as it is for us to identify what is addiction. Because if everything that comes through the door, we identify as as an addiction, that's an issue with us and our diagnostic skills. Right. But it, it usually starts like, like usually there is some miscommunication earlier on. Right. That needs to be addressed. Right. And if that didn't get addressed or you tried to bring it up to your therapist and it didn't go well and they did gaslight you or they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Or, or wrong. Yes. It's going to get harder than to bring it up when other boundaries are crossed. Right. And, and I will say there's some pieces of that too right where like I try to be accountable for the impact regardless of my intent right like there are absolutely times that I will say something and I know that my intent was this but like the impact on the client was yes hard or harsh or like un it was not received the way that I expected it to be. right right and which happens in therapy because we're helping people face things that they haven't faced right and so in that process, there is going to be miscommunication or something's going to feel really blunt. And sometimes I'm thinking like, 
I'm like tiptoeing around this issue and delivering it very gentle. <laughs> and they're coming back and they're like, that was so direct. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. We all, I thought I was tiptoeing. <laughs> yes. We also have this issue of we are very direct people in general. I don't think it's actually an issue, but like. There are so many times where I'm like, I was really soft. Right. Was me being really soft. But I do think that in reality, some of that directness is what makes us good at what we do. Mm -hmm. Because our clients have come to trust that we will say what needs to be said. Now, sometimes they leave therapy and then they see three other therapists and then come back and are like, actually, I can now appreciate you being truthful with me. Right. Because these other three were not, and I got nowhere. Right. And I want to be clear, we are not cruel. No. I am never cruel with my clients. And I think that this is another thing that comes in that red flag thing. If your therapist is demeaning, if they are dehumanizing, if they're using inappropriate language, like, you should never be called names in your therapy office, Mm -hmm. right? You should never be called stupid or idiot. And that's that you're being an idiot or... That was a stupid move, right? I had to address that with a therapist I'm supervising. And, you know, we were talking about confronting a client. And he's like, oh, yeah, I told him he was an idiot. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. Right. I'm like, you use the word? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's not healthy confrontation. Like, as therapists, we cannot be name-calling. Right. We can't be using passive language like that. Right. I mean, like... That's a huge ethical issue. Yes. It, it actually is a big ethical yeah. issue. Yeah. And so when we are talking about, right, like if you feel dehumanized mm-hmm. in your therapy sessions, that is not okay. Right. And if you feel safe to t- talk to your therapist about it and say like, you know, this came off kind of bad and you can make a repair mm-hmm. in that, right? Like, again, I'm coming from this place of like as a therapist, sometimes I don't know that it lands the way that it does. And I would love the opportunity to make a repair because I am human and that does happen. But I have proven multiple times that my clients will come to me if they feel off about something. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to create an environment where they do feel safe to do that because most of our clients have never been safe to do that ever. Right. And so if it doesn't feel safe, find a new therapist. Mm-hmm. And that's Right. Like you are not married to your therapist. Right. Period. You can hire or fire a therapist mm-hmm. at any point. And and I understand that it can feel more complicated than that. It can feel like your standing in your religion is on the line. Your standing at a church affiliated university is on the line. And being made to feel that the consequences are all going to be on you if you stop working with a therapist, is very unethical. Yes, And it is. getting into a new therapist, hopefully that new therapist helps you recognize the position of power you are actually in. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I understand that our professional licensing board isn't really quick to act, and they usually give the benefit of the doubt because uh, they understand that these are, you know, clients are in a vulnerable position and therapists can be wrong, but also if clients feel, I mean, you know, we've worked with, we don't work with a lot of custody cases and we try not to really weigh in legally. Mm -hmm. And so far we really haven't ever been subpoenaed in a custody case and had to go to court. We've been subpoenaed, but it's usually not ended up with us testifying. Right. So 
I just think that new therapist should, I, I think Doppel gives some leeway to therapists knowing that like if, if the court ruled on one position in custody, the other parent could file a complaint against us and we did nothing, right? right. We did nothing wrong, but that parent is upset. Right. Or we've had times when we've had to report to DCFS and they report us to Duffel because of a substantiated claim or we're mandated reporters. We have to report hypes. Yeah. Um, we have to report if we suspect there could be abuse. Which is another issue. If you are in a therapist office and you like, there are things that we have to report. Mm-hmm. And like you and I have talked about this around like, if there is a chance that the therapist won't report, right? That's kind of a problem, right? Like, I remember you telling a story once where you had a client that was reporting and you got it in and reported it mm-hmm. because you knew that there would be conflict with your, my supervisor. Your supervisor wouldn't want me to report what I knew. I mean, the mother and this, like, she was like 12 year old girl. Like, when I said, I'm, we're getting into territory, I have to report, they were both like, okay. Yeah, we want it reported. We don't know why it hasn't been reported yet because they had seen other therapists. Yeah, right? So, like, there are things. Now, that doesn't mean that every time it's reported, something's going to come of it. Mm-hmm. And But, like, we have to report suspected child abuse. Mm-hmm. We have to report suspected homicidal mm-hmm. or, like, damn it. Like, if you are threatening another yourself or other yourself, yeah. We have to report that. and Or abuse of the elderly. Mm-hmm. potential abuse of the elderly and so like those are things that we have to like report like we have to right we will lose our license if we right. don't and so right like a lot of I, I know a lot of therapists who are like are frustrated with that because it can create a problem with the client mm-hmm. in terms of trust but I think that like we're open and honest with our clients about like, I'm going to report. This is what it's going to look like. This is what you've told me. And oftentimes we do that together with them. It's yes. Them. Yeah. Uh, if, or they know we're going to be more there. Yeah. Right. And, and, and in my experience, I mean, I think people are afraid of DCFS. What they know of DCFS is they take kids away. Yep. This is a different topic we're getting off on and I want to veer it back. But my experience with DCFS is they're not eager to take kids away from parents or family. No. If anything, they give too many chances, is my experience as a therapist. Right. Which, again, I don't know what the cutoff line is for chances, so maybe they're getting it exactly right. I've never worked at DCFS, but I don't see them overly eager to come down with harsh penalties or to take kids away. Well, and I, I do think that that shifts back into the Jody Hildebrandt, Ruby, Frankie, Frankie thing. It was like there had been reports. Yes. And it wasn't until a child escaped from a home and ran, like... Invisible evidence. Invisible evidence of abuse and restraint that the kids were taken out of the home. Like, it it does take a lot because there's not a lot of resources. And this is one of the things that I think it's good to recognize, too, is, like, the government isn't, like, eager to take our kids away, right? Like, I hear that a lot. Right. Is like they don't they don't have the resources they don't have the housing they don't have the foster care is already full right like they they just don't so if they can keep a child in the home and do reparative services in the home mm-hmm. they're going to yes and just recognizing that may make it easier and kind of circling back to the like the ethics of this right like 
there are red flags that show up, I think, with therapists, right? Like, I, I always question people when they choose me, like, what was it about me that you chose me? Now, sometimes it's just because, you know, I was who had an available slot. <laughs> but a lot of times it's like what my profile says about me, or sometimes it's my picture or like whatever. And I think it's good as a client to ask, why am I choosing this person? Mm -hmm. Because we tend to choose people that seem familiar. And it's good for us to just ask, like, what is this? Mm -hmm. Especially if there is a direct referral, right? That's kind of what we have been talking about. Because a lot of these, these three therapists specifically had a lot of direct referrals from a religious organization. Right. And I think it's good to also just recognize that, like, religious organizations as a whole don't actually have a lot of mental health education mm -hmm. and they're just trying to find a place to put you sometimes right right there's not really a vetting process in yeah. place for them to vet mental health therapists right so if you know if it's someone who has come to them and says i do this you know like the likelihood that they're saying like oh great now i have a person right is high. I have heard that. Yes. I have heard that from ecclesiastical leaders, right? Like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm glad I just have a person to send them to. Mm -hmm. That was it. There was no, like, what is your practice? What are your modalities? What is your, right? Like, and so recognizing that you are allowed to use your gut, right? That you shouldn't always trust people just because you've got a direct referral. Like, right? Like, I, I, recently um gave my friend some referrals to a therapist and my disclaimer was i know these people professionally i've never sent in a therapy session with them and two of them i think are really good like i think that they're like i i know people who have worked with them and i think they do good work and one of them i think is really good but i don't know that their personality is going to jive so maybe i don't know right and like you have the right to not take my referral right right and i think that that is a big piece of this is like you should always have autonomy mm -hmm. you should always have autonomy in therapy and if you at no point should your therapist be like you, you should not be physically touched by your therapist unless there is like some kind of agreed upon like this is okay right like i know a lot of grief therapists will like hold hands if mm -hmm. you're like grieving or like um you know in group therapy you may like hold hands to like close on therapy or whatever that is but like physical touch should be agreed upon right right and should be very minimal, mm -hmm. right? Like your therapist should not be touching you all the time. Mm -hmm. that, that's a whole thing that like, right? That, like there are those people that are just handsy. They should not be handsy as therapists. No. And it would be on the responsibility of the therapist to monitor that. Right. And if they are, and you're the client, you have the right to fire them. Yeah. And it's like, this is that like, you have full autonomy in treatment. Mm -hmm. I like language i think is really important um you and i don't use a lot of like moral or religious language mm -hmm. in our therapy right um we know a lot of therapists that do right um that's a red flag for me like as a client going to therapy i tend to veer away from therapists who use that kind of language even when i was a part of a religious community that just doesn't say that tells me there's a bias there right right and i i want more of a clinical well, and, and I think in our professional field, there are words 
that are not religious words or not right. moral words, right? Like we can talk about functional versus dysfunctional, healthy versus unhealthy instead of good, bad, right, wrong, right, sinful, righteous. Like the, the language is provided for us right. as professionals. We don't need to be co-opting it from mm -hmm. another, another institution. The other thing we wanted to talk about, and I know like when when I think the Jody Hildebrandt Ruby Frankie story broke first, my husband, and then it was like, I feel like it was a week and then the life-changing services story broke. And then the other therapist, like, I was like, oh my gosh, it has yeah. been a month, right? And my husband at one point said to me like, so is this good or is this bad for you professionally? And I was like, I don't know that it's good. I mean, it's good that these licenses have been suspended. Like, I had heard about some of these people, therapists. I knew that there were questions and I knew that there was unethical things happening. So I, it's good that they have lost their license, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, first of all, it's never good to realize that the therapists are out there doing this. Yes. Like, to me, I'm like, that's never a good thing. Secondly, in the field of sexual addiction, sexual treatment, I'm like, it, it, you know, it already can be easily fired. Like, and, and I saw this in the ProPublica, no, not in the ProPublica story, in the Rolling Stones article. They talked about how pornography addiction, sexual addiction are not in the DSM. Oh, yeah. Which is always an argument that we get doing this work, right, is, well, it's not in the DSM. And there are, you know, groups I'm part of in on Facebook or social media that, you know, sometimes professionally that'll come up and I'm like, I, I just don't have the bandwidth to tackle that right now online am I going to tackle anything but sometimes I'll make a comment and then I get that like well it's not in the DSM right so let's talk a little bit about that because yeah. too true it is not in the DSM there is not but you know sometimes I'll say to people do you realize that like alcoholism is not in the DSM right and they're like no Technically, addiction as a word right. is not in any diagnostic material. No, it always has a more professional title to it. Yes. Uh, impulse control disorder is mm -hmm. one that is usually used. Uh, chemical dependency disorder. Right. Um, alcohol dependence. Yes. Is how alcoholism is identified. Yes. And But the actual definition of addiction doesn't say substance chemical addiction it doesn't right. define it as right. like a ingested substance right and i think it's good to recognize too right like that we do have we do know that beha like behavioral addictions are recognized yes professionally in this field by researchers right and we're not making it right this has 40 years of research behind it mm -hmm. the term sex addiction is a pop culture term right and i think one addiction Later. Right. So is drug addiction. Right. So, I mean, addiction is a pop culture term. It is something that we use to make it easier and more palatable for mm -hmm. the public to understand. Right. Um, because when you start talking about impulse control disorder, when you start talking about dependency issues or dependency disorders or intimacy disorders, right, that gets real confusing real fast. And I think it's good to recognize that we like pop psychology. Mm-hmm. Right. The word codependence has been co-opted. Narcissism has been co-opted. Right. And isolating, gaslighting, right? Like um, narcissistic abuse. What is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's another one. Most of those things are not in the DSM either. Codependency is not in the DSM. 
narcissism is, but it's a personality disorder. And in order to get a personality disorder diagnosis, it's actually pretty intensive. Um, it takes time. It takes, it takes time. a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. A lot of things can, I mean, again, this is where like coming out of grad school, I went into addiction, right? And, and that was the first job I had. And they were always very clear that like, before we can diagnose a mental health issue or a mental health diagnosis, we need to have some sobriety yeah. because mental health diagnosis can look like a lot of things when the person person is in active addiction. Right. And when they're not in active addiction, these things aren't there. So narcissistic personality disorder, sure, it can look like that when they're in active addiction and then they get sober and it's just not there. Right. And I, I would even say like, even in terms of like diagnostic criteria, right? Like everyone has things within the personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline, mm -hmm. histrionic, like there is a a normal or a healthy level mm -hmm. of all of those symptoms. Right. It is when those symptoms become extreme. Right. Over long periods of time that we can diagnose and categorize them. And so. And that's the primary thing going on. Right. And so recognizing that A, there are things that are not in the DSM for political reasons. Also recognizing that there were things in the DSM literally 20 years ago that are abhorrent. Mm -hmm. Right. And like mm -hmm. that we cringe about the fact that they were in the DSM. Right. Like we like reparative therapy or conversion therapy are blacklit. Like you cannot do them in the United mm -hmm. States ethically. You shouldn't be doing them in the United States ethically. You will absolutely lose your license. It is considered completely unethical to do mm -hmm. those. Um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that was standard practice. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that was in the DSM. Right. And so I think it's good to recognize maybe not. Maybe we're like 30, 40. Yes, I know. I'm really yeah, as a <laughs> Right. But like in the 80s and 90s, that that was standard. Right. Yes. Right. And I'm recognizing that like that's awful. Mm -hmm. Right. The DSM is also the place where we got like where we would categorize female sexuality as problematic when it was normal. Yes. Right. Like just women having a sexual desire was problematic according mm -hmm. to them the first and second DSM. And I think it's good to recognize, like, this is this is a, a document that has evolved over time. And it's really, we don't use it. Here, here's the other thing that, that people in the world need to understand. Therapists only use the DSM in order to find a categorical diagnosis. We don't use it for insurance purposes. We don't use it. And it's popular or it's only it's used in the United States. Is right. Only used in the United States. It can be used nowhere else in the world. And everywhere else in the world, in, you know, first world, second world countries, are using the ICD-10, which is the International Categorical and Diagnostics. Yeah. Anyway, it but it's for all medicine, not just mental health. Physicians as well. Physicians, mental health, right? Insurances in the United States use this now. And so really the DSM is becoming obsolete. And I think that that is one thing to recognize that like, yes, we use it as mental health practices, but in terms of diagnosing, we actually have to use the ICD-10 and, or, and the 11 is coming out like next year. I think. Yeah. I think, I think some countries already have the 11th. Yeah. And so we know what's in the yeah. 11. We, I think we get it next year. Yeah. But right. Like, so in using that, like, and 
sexual compulsive disorder is in the ICD. Mm-hmm. I think it's called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Yes. And so, which again sounds like terminology for what we would translate into the pop culture as sex addiction, pornography addiction, right? Right. And it has this more formal. And the diagnostic criteria lines up with what we have been calling yes. sex addiction. Yes. That's the other thing. Like the diagnostic criteria matches what we mm-hmm. are currently using as sex addiction. And so, yes, right? Like the are using, I don't know if everybody, I don't know if some of these therapists actually had a diagnostic criteria that they went through with. So, so that's the other thing I wanted to kind of address and talk about. You and I are certified sex addiction therapists. We, we have a governing body above us that has its own ethics board that mm-hmm. we do trainings with. We do, you know, ethics trainings with, and we have access to some of the most current research going on or right. that has been done. Right. And and though I won't say that every CSAT does what we do, that is an extra layer of ethical protection, I think, right? Like, or accountability. Right. I, I know for a fact at least one of these therapists was doing, quote unquote, sex addiction therapy and was not a CSAT. I don't think. I don't think either. Of, I, don't, I don't think that. I don't think all, any of the three were CSATs. Um, Although I had known CSATs who lose their license. Right. Unethical behavior. Right. That happens. Yes. But I I also want to recognize one of the things that you and I have always held at high regard is the amount of education and the amount Mm -hmm. of training and like what we do as therapists to be good at our job. Mm -hmm. And I, we often joke, I often quote the taken, I have a very, um, very unique set of skills. Oh, okay. Very specific set of skills. And that's true. Like, I don't know that I have a lot of training or ability to talk about general mental health or like working with anxiety disorders or work, right? Because I have only worked mm-hmm. in trauma and addiction. So we, we see like ADHD connected to addiction, right? Right. Or addiction connected to ADHD. We see anxiety within this framework of trauma, whether that's betrayal, trauma, trauma, addiction, like that's the lens we view it through. Right. And there's a lot of stuff that like I just haven't worked with because this is what we work with. Right. right? And I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in that and would probably pass that off to someone else who is more of an expert in that. Right. But that is one of the things that I think is really important is like if you are seeing like if you're just looking for a therapist and they have like 50 things that they specialize in, they probably don't. Right. That's a broad exposure to these different issues in grad school. Yes. Nobody can be an expert in that many things because being an expert requires a lot of you. Right. It requires a great deal of focus, understanding, research in what you're an expert in. Mm -hmm. And to keep up on that. Right. And I think that that's a really important thing Like when you're looking for a therapist or when you're looking for a mental health professional. Recognizing, like, if they say they specialize in a lot of things, mm-hmm. they specialize in probably none of them. Mm-hmm. They may have exposure to that, but I think there's a difference between being exposed to it and being a professional. Yeah. And- or if we if we get an intake query from somebody, they're looking for couples counseling, right? I'll usually say, we work with couples who are dealing with infidelity, sex addiction, problematic sexual behavior. If that's not what's going on for you, we have good referrals. Mm-hmm. That's who we focus on. Right. And sometimes they are like, oh, yeah, no, that's going on. 
And I'm like, here's some good referrals. Right. Because that that's really what we focus on. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, if that's not our focus, hand them off to another therapist and make room for those that we do focus on. Right. You and I have talked about this before, but like, I just want, there's a mental health shortage. We don't have enough good therapists right. out there, period. And I, I don't see the point of holding, like, I don't see the point of holding on to a client that isn't a good fit mm-hmm. because there are good therapists out there that are good fits, right? And we try to network really well with people who don't work with inside addiction mm-hmm. so that we have people to refer to. But I do think this is this comes back to just being aware of there are a lot of things pop culture wise that will get said and sound bites often fall apart when you get you know down mm-hmm. there right like the it's not in a dsm okay right but it is the in the icd i mean there's a lot of mental health issues people deal with that are not in the dsm right maybe because insurance doesn't want to cover that because right. it's so common for people when i first entered the field you know there was a diagnosis i don't remember the name of it for grief mm-hmm. right and we recognized i mean it was specific grief like you had to have the death of a close person a child a parent, a sibling, like it was close, right? It was grief. It was grief. And and we wouldn't diagnose you with depression if it was in the first year of that loss. And then I think, you know, there was some discussion around like, well, how do we know it's a year? Like, is it really a year? Is it longer than a year? I like to think people thought maybe it was longer than a year, but maybe they thought, well, does it have to take a year? I don't know. And so they shortened it. I think they shortened it to like two months. Mm-hmm. And then it was classified, which it was more recognizing that grief happened and this wasn't necessarily a mental health issue. Right. And then they shortened it to I think two months and then it was like a couple of weeks. And now it's not now it's just depression, right? It's just depression. We're not, I mean, there's some efforts to try to get like complex PTSD or complex grief back into the DSM or back into a diagnostic manual, but yeah, like there, there are some things that probably should be there that insurances cover and they don't. Right. And that's the other thing, right? Like these are often controlled by insurances. Right. Which is uh, when Jackie and I were being trained in the DSM, we had access one and access two criteria. Now we don't. No, but because, because the NNR newer trained therapists are like, what? what are you guys talking about? Right. Um, because access two will not be covered by insurance. Right. And so like they just got rid of it. Mm-hmm. And... And by the way, access to is that narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic, histrionic, antisocial, right? But we don't, insurance won't pay pay for that Mm -hmm. because that is a long, according to them, a long-term life issue. Mm -hmm. And so they won't pay for it ongoing. And they're paid for marriage counseling. They won't pay for marriage. And yeah, you can't do couples therapy and get it paid for unless you have just like a ridiculously good insurance. They don't pay for group therapy, which to be clear, we have massive amounts of research on group therapy being very effective and if they do pay for group therapy like they reimburse i think the last time i looked into this like it was anywhere from five to fifteen dollars that a therapist could be reimbursed for group therapy yeah which is that's 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 not a thing that doesn't even cover like that the hour no right and so this is some of that like recognizing that there's a lot of politics involved in diagnosis there's a lot of right i mean Jackie and I have talked about like it's frustrating when clients get diagnosis that we've worked with these clients, no, di- these clients for years. They have a crisis, they go to the hospital, 
to a matter of three new dying they see yes and it's like no they don't have any of this like i've worked with them consistently for three years this is not consistent for them they had a crisis mm-hmm. but in order for the hospital to get things covered they had to give them a diagnosis right and those are frustrating parts of our system that we live in and they actually have very little to do with what we are doing on the ground mm-hmm. and when it comes to sex addiction right you will have a lot of people say that it can't be an addiction okay do we agree that people can have you know compulsive sexual behaviors that may or may not affect the relationships that they're in or their ability to have relationships or their job or their ability to be functional right or does it create a lot of shame for them does it like yes (laughs) because if they didn't then there would be no need for sex therapy period right like if everybody had great sex all the time and there was no problem then it would be fine we wouldn't, we wouldn't need therapy if there w- wasn't a problem. And ultimately, that I think that that's what you and I kind of look at this as, is like we're trying to get people into a healthy sexual space mm-hmm. um, that helps them integrate and be in alignment with themselves. Mm-hmm. Which is also broader than just focusing on sex, whether it's a problem right. or not. Like, there's a whole lot going on. and And sometimes I question, like, you know, when I've read some of the accounts, I'm like, okay, so this was like focused on to an extreme in an unhealthy way. Yes. I mean, I I probably talk about sex and say sexual words every week, right? Yeah. But not every session with every client. Right. We focus on a lot of other things while working on pornography addiction, sex addiction, intimacy disorders. Like we focus on a lot of other things. Right. Codependency issues, Mm -hmm. boundaries. Right, right. A lot of times we're focusing on wants and needs, right? This is something that recently came up, right? Like, what is the difference between a want and a need and how do you know what a need is and how do you ask for it as an adult, right? That has nothing to do with sex. It can. But then it's going to show up sexually if there's problems in that. But there's a lot of ways it doesn't show up sexually. And, right. And I think that that's just one of those things, like, there needs to be a balance. Sex is the mirror in which other issues show up. Right. And so if you're having issues sexually, it's because it's reflecting that there are other issues in other parts of your life. And we spend a lot of time focusing on those other parts of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, we directly address sex and sexual right. things. Right. And we don't shy away from that. Right. But it is never a hyper focus. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I will say this, too, because I have an issue with this and I have seen this and I have seen this happen. If your therapist feels like they are voyeuring your story mm-hmm. and it is more uncomfortable for you to tell your story than it is for them to ask, that might be a problem. And I am specifically bringing this up because I have worked with sexual assault clients who were asked to go through extreme details of their assault too early. Mm-hmm. And one, that should never happen, right? Like, your telling of your sexual assault should be yours. Or even just your sexual timeline. Yeah. Right, right. Like, it should be yours. The therapist should know they have to have a trusting relationship. They're going to say, hey, this will be something helpful for me to understand kind of a bigger picture. When you're ready, let's start working on that. Yes. Like, that's not something that the therapist tells you when and how you're going to be doing that. Right. And I believe this about trauma in general. Trauma is a place that we lost autonomy, mm-hmm. that we did not have a choice or a voice or options. Mm-hmm. And 
so there is something very therapeutic about you choosing and you trusting and you putting it out there and being specifically vulnerable in a really safe space mm-hmm. by your self, right. by all right. your on your own. Yes, where right, like, and the therapist giving you that choice, giving you that voice, like we will do it when you're ready. Yes, and like I have just heard horror stories from clients, mm-hmm. specifically around sexual assault, but traumatic events in general right like where their therapist was way more interested in the detail than the emotional stability of the client Mm -hmm. and that just should not happen period right like it has created more trauma for every client that i have worked through Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. and as a therapist it is my job to work through people's stories and help them with that trauma but i don't have the right to that right i don't have the right to my client's stories and I think that that is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. It is your choice to go to therapy and to get your story and to work through it. It should never feel like you have to give it up. Right. And I and I think, too, as therapists, when we are, you know, I mean, again, if, if clients are in a place where they want to give us the details, our job as a therapist is to help them make sense of that and to regulate during yes. that process. That's the only like to me, sometimes I am like, you know, they're like, how much detail do you want? And I'm like, whatever you feel like you need to tell. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need any details if it's not helpful to you. Like the only reason I need, I will hear details is because that's somehow helpful to you. Right. Not for my curiosity, not for, I don't have a need for that. Right. right? So I, again, I think we'll see these stories, you know, continue to unfold. They're probably going to be more breaking ones because it's not just these three who were violating ethics. You know, therapists do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Some therapists do that all the time, and apparently then they do it again. But I think it's just helpful to kind of help clients understand, you know, I, again, I mean, we're we're working with a lot of clients who don't aren't in touch with their body. It's hard for them to trust their gut. They've been gaslit a lot. So trusting their gut is a loaded thing. But oftentimes your gut had a reaction, mm-hmm. right? And and maybe you weren't in a place to trust that or speak up to that. And that shouldn't be judged or you shouldn't be shamed for that. You know, all of this is done in a way that helps you understand. And if it's feeling like it's in any other reason, that's probably an agenda that isn't really yours. Yeah. Also, yes, absolutely. And I I want to add, like, on a personal note, stuff like this infuriates me mm-hmm. because... Because ethics are really important. And right. human human beings getting help and how scary it is to reach out and start working on therapy is huge. That's a huge first step. And it feels very vulnerable and very raw. And for people in my profession to take advantage of that is infuriating. Mm-hmm. It is beyond infuriating. And I just want to recognize like we have a lot of really good therapists out there mm-hmm. that do good work, that do their own work, that we do trust. Mm-hmm. And I I want to speak to, like, they do this work well. And you have the right to find those therapists, right? right? Like, right. you have the right to shop for therapists and show up. And at any time, mm-hmm. at any time, you can end a client therapist relationship mm-hmm. um that is actually one of the ethics that is required in our country right. now right um because that wasn't required in the 70s 
and now it is. Mm -hmm. And so you do have the right to choose your therapist. Right. Um, and all treatment is voluntary unless demanded, commanded by the state, which it takes a lot to even get that to happen. So. And there's still an array of therapists to choose from when it is court ordered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.